Now, again, I, I feel like almost every need or week I need to take a moment to explain this whole Jenga thing up here because I know that there may be people that are visiting the first time and you're like, what's going on? A Jenga set and this video, blind Jenga. And, well, well, here's the idea. We've been starting this series on the Ten Commandments and we're using the game of Jenga as an illustration because I think there's a sense you can think of the commandments kind of as related to a game of Jenga. Now, here's what I mean is when we have a game of Jenga, there might be, you know, we could take here and we could say there are some blocks that I could take out here and it may weaken the tower, but the tower is not going to fall. There are other blocks, so you can look at this one here or this one here, and you realize that the tower, everything above it, rests on this block. It's foundational. It's something that is, that is, you know, that the whole tower rests on. And if I try to remove this, if I try to remove this, if I try to remove one of these foundational blocks, the whole thing's going to fall. And the, the nature is such that being foundational, everything rests on them. And that's the idea of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's foundational truths that he's given us for our good. And the idea here is that if we, if we ignore them in our life, or if we ignore them or disregard them in our culture, the result will be the tower will collapse. And we're going to see that throughout the series, as we go through many of these commandments, we're going to see that many of the you know, big cultural issues that we're facing today, the big crisis problems that we're facing, is directly related to the fact that we've removed these foundational principles, and you can track them all back to us doing that. Now, even as we've looked at this, we've said, okay, now how do we understand the commandments? And because I think for many, if I would ask, what are the Ten Commandments? Many people would say, well, that's God's rules that he gives us. That's God's moral law. And, um, and there's a sense that we will rightly, rightly say they are God's moral law, but they are far more than that. You see, they're not just rules, but they are, again, broad principles that God has given us to build our lives, to build our culture upon. The principles that come with a promise. There's a warning if we remove it, the tower is going to fall. But on the other hand, there's a promise that if we build our lives on these principles, if we keep them at the foundation of who we are, they will help us to discover the health and the happiness, both personally and as a culture, that we long for. Now, through this study, as we look at this as not just simplistic, but as we see it as these broad, broad principles, what we're going to do is, is, as many weeks, we're going to look at some of these commandments for two weeks. And, and we're going to actually look at two related aspects in understanding them. And in a sense, we've, on the one hand, we will go deep. We're going to exam, examine closely. We're going to try to look at it and say, okay, how is it not just a command of behavior, but how does it speak to an issue of the heart? You see, because God isn't just concerned about what we do, God is even more concerned about who we are. And so when we understand this, you know, we've got to go deeper and say, okay, what is God saying about, about our character, about how he wants to change who we are, not just seeing it as a behavioral thing. But there's also a sense that we then need to zoom out. And in a sense, we need to see it as something, the broad principle in a sense. Or to use the whole illustration is we need to say, okay, if this is a foundation here, you know, then how does it impact the, the blocks above it? How does removing the, each piece impact, you know, everything else? How does it literally change the way that we view the world? Because if we understand these foundations, then we're going to see them as big statements of truth that impact a whole bunch of stuff. And so that's what we're doing this morning with the first commandment. We're going to back up and see how does it impact everything else? And as we look at that, we're going to realize that as we started to say last week, all the Ten Commandments are foundational. 
But if you were to look at any that are more important than the others, the first two are not only first in order, they're, they're first in, in priority. And so I mean, many of you can't see this, but even on the very bottom, you have a one and a two. They have two, two things that if I remove either of these two pieces, these two blocks, the whole tower is coming down. And everything else, all the other blocks rest upon them. And that's, in a sense, what we have with the first two commandments, is they are the foundation of everything. What do we believe about God? Is God the center of our life? And do we have the right beliefs about God? And so we began looking at the first commandment last, last week. It's stated very clearly in Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and even last week, we looked at that. And we said, if you look in your Bible, there's a little footnote there right beside before. And it tells us the word before could also be translated beside or in addition to me. So you shall have no other gods before me or beside me or in addition to me. And what it's saying is that it's not only that, you know, you should go to the right church and worship the right God. It's saying that we could be someone who goes to church and, and we can have, you know, I worship God on Sunday. Well, no, God's not just concerned about being the God on Sunday. He's concerned that we worship him in all areas of our life, that he wants to be first. He wants to be the priority in every aspect throughout a whole week. Now, as we look at this, we're going to look at this again broadly today, and we're going to see how this one commandment impacts all the areas of our life. And we're going to spend really all of our time in Romans chapter 1, which we read a few moments ago. And it's an incredible passage where it teaches not only the importance of keeping God first, but what happens when we don't. So if we start in verse 18, it tells us that we need to start by acknowledging God is our creator and our designer. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness from men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now we're going to start by saying, it says the wrath of God is revealed. And we're going to see the wrath of God revealed in this passage. But I'm going to tell you that it's not what you expect it to be. What happens when we remove God, make something else the God of our lives? There's a wrath of God, but that wrath is not what you expect it to be. We're going to come back to that in a minute. I also want you to notice that it says that who are in our righteousness suppress the truth. And one of the things that's really important that you need to realize is what it's saying is that deep down, I can talk to atheists or people that reject God. Deep down, when you really dig deep into their heart, we all know there's a God. We all know there's a God. And Ethan, atheists, why is it that they're angry with God? It's not because they don't believe there's a God. It's because they don't want to believe there's a God. They have to argue against him because, because there's something that they're suppressing. And that's true of every person that I've interacted with. That's what the Bible is saying here. And we know there's a God because it's something that's rooted not only in, our, in, our, in the world around us, but even in our heart in the sense of, the, of our consciousness. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain God has written in our heart that deep down we know there's a God because God has shown it to him, not only through our heart, but through his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, which have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. How do we know? Well, God gives us the evidence. You look around it, and you see in the natural world, you see the evidence of design, you see God's fingerprints all there. And some people would say, well, wait a second, doesn't science teach us you know, evolution? I thought science is on the side of evolution. No, it's not. The fact is, is that I, I will strongly argue and, and have studied the issue that science strongly supports the whole idea of creation. 
In fact, if, you know, as I interact with people that, that believe evolution, what I find is that people that really hold evolution, either number one, they've really never studied the subject, or number two, they start with the presumption there can't be a God, and then they have to ignore all the evidence to be able to, to, to stand on the thing that they started with. You know, the Bible clearly supports the idea of creation. Now, if you want to go deeper on this, I'll let you know we did a series on this about five years ago on, on intelligent design and God's creation. Um, we have that available. If you want to listen to it or watch it, please let us know. We'll make sure and make it available to you. But it just digs deep into the evidence in this, of just saying, here's why we can know with confidence the fact that we are created. So it not only teaches that we are created, but then it also set, implies that because we're created, we are created by God, for relationship with God. So God has created us, in a sense, with what some people will say, this God-shaped vacuum in our heart, that we have a, this need, this, this thing that calls out that, that we need to worship. In fact, look what it says again, if you have your Bibles, verse 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, here's what I want you to realize. It's not saying that there are some people who worship and other people who don't. No, everybody worships. You see, it's not, okay, well, here's the religious people that worship God, and here's these irreligious people that don't have a God. No, we all worship, and people that reject the true God just put something else there in the God spot in their life. It's, it's an exchange. Why? Because there, we all need to worship something. That is, we have this God-shaped vacuum, and we're going to put something there. It's just a matter of it's the true God or it's a false God. We may not call it in religious terms, but what is the thing that you put your hope in? What is it that you dream about? What do you find your happiness in? You know, what do you trust in for security? Well, that's your true God. And, and it can be, we talked last week, it could be money, it can be relationships, it could be health, it can be pleasure, it can be work, it could be family, it could be all kinds of things. It could be our hobbies. In fact, it could be anything in all creation. Look at verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. See, it can be anything in creation. It can be anything. Now, how do we understand why this works? Because if we go back to the whole story of creation, what you find is that in creation, God has created all these things, and he's given us good gifts. They're things that are good. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and what you hear is you hear God created, and he called it good. And he gave us all these things that he designed it for our good, for our pleasure. They're gifts that he's given us for us to enjoy. But they're gifts to be enjoyed according to his design. You see, again, we've got to remember that God's not only the creator, he's the designer. And as the designer, he designs, you know, the purpose of something. He designs, in a sense, not only the purpose, but, but the guidelines by how we're to enjoy that thing rightly. See, if we're to do them, they can't become central in our lives because then we're taking this good thing and we're, in a sense, making it a God thing. We're, we're, we're trying to get something out of it. It was just not designed to fulfill. It will never satisfy as a God thing because it wasn't designed to fill that spot of need in our life. And the problem is, is that we all have these good things that God has given us, and it's our tendency to take these good things and to try to make them God things, little g. It's, in, it's our tendency to try to take these things that are good, and instead of enjoying them as part of our relationship with God, to suddenly make them most important. Or, or we try to enjoy them by our own rules. So we go to church on Sunday, but then when we go out, you know, we, 
We don't honor God as the God over our money or over our entertainment, over a sex life, over our workplace ethics, over our friendships. See, we become our own God over those areas. Now, what the Bible teaches, what Romans 1 is teaching here is that any time that we do that, any time we take something that is good and we try to make it something that is a God thing in our life, any time that we try to rely on it to fill our deepest needs and desires, it will always fall short. It will never be a good God thing. It will never deliver as a God. And so as a result, it's, it's, you know, we're going to try to rely on it more, and the more that we squeeze, the more it's going to not only not satisfy, the more it's going to become dysfunctional and actually lead us to a path of destruction. In other words, any time that you take the first thing out, any time you take the first foundation out, the tower's always going to fall. That's the idea here. Now, let me show you how Romans 1 shows us how this happens. And he shows us the progress of removing this first foundation. So it's not only what we do, but as we go through these steps, the, the progress of the impact of how it, how it is corrosive in our life. So let's, let's look at what Romans 1 says, starting in verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the first thing we do is that we fail to honor God as God and we fail to give thanks to him. Notice it begins by saying, although they knew God. You see, okay, again, these are, it's possible that we go to church on Sunday, that we worship God, that we call God our true God. But what happens is that we know God, but we fail to honor him as God. And I think specifically what it's saying is that we fail to honor him as God in all areas of our life. I think we can go to church and we honor God and God and worship. You know, we worship the true God on Sunday morning, but again, then I go out throughout the week and I don't recognize him as all areas of, of God in all areas. So that when it comes to all these different things, what happens is I want control. I want to do it my own way. And so what we do is we see the created things that God gives us, the good thing, and we value those and we value our independence. And so therefore we, we put our own wisdom of how to do it above God's word, above God's truth. I'm God over that, not, not the true God. And closely related to this is this idea we don't thank him. Now, in that, you might look at it and say, what, we don't thank him? Why is that key? And just, I mean, is it just politeness that we're supposed to say thank you and then God's going to be happy? Well, no, that, it seems much, much more than that. You see, what does it mean to give thanks to God? It means to acknowledge that he is the source of everything that I have. And what happens is that we don't want to admit that God is the source of everything we have. Because if he's the source, what that means is that I also then have to admit that he's the designer. So he's the one who has given this, and as the designer, if I admit that, and I'm really thankful, then I have to admit that his words, his truth about how I'm to enjoy that is the truth and how I should live my life. But we don't want to do that. And we hate the idea of acknowledging him as God and to be thankful because we don't want to lose control. I want to do it my own way. So basically, you know, God, you know, I want to be God, but, but this, you know, this isn't from you. This is from me. This is on my own. Now, in a few verses, we're going to see that Paul really spends a lot of time on the issue of sexuality as an example of this whole thing. And now, if we think about even that own example, let's take a moment and say, okay, what is the truth here? What is the principle here? See, we need to recognize that what God is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. 
on the issue of sexuality. God's the one who created relationships. God's the one who created sex. God's the one who made it pleasurable. God's the one who called it good. He wants us to enjoy it, but according to his design. And what is his design? His design is, okay, I'm creating this wonderful thing, and it's in the context of marriage. So I want one woman and one man to come together and make a lifelong commitment. And after you've made that commitment, then you are free to enjoy this wonderful gift, and it will be a great gift that will bring satisfaction and joy. And I want you to do it that way. But what happens is that we look at that and we say, well, but I want to do it my way. We don't honor God as God over that area of our life, and that begins this process. I'm taking him out of that foundation, and it leads ultimately to a falling of the tower. I I take the first commandment out, and it leads to me messing up the sixth commandment, the whole idea of relationships and sexuality. Now, what happens in that, though, is that we look at that, and we think that there's there's a wisdom that is, we have a wisdom but it's a wisdom that in a sense is based on foolishness. Look at, uh, it, it, this, this isn't the verse that's up here, but look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and then their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God uh, for, um, for or they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images re- resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, here's what he's saying. is that their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because claiming to be wise, we became fools. As we fall away from God, first of all, I want you to realize this fall is always perceived as an act of wisdom. So when you see things happening in our culture now, we're on the right side of history, we're wise here, that we understand. That's something that has always been the case. Why? Because when we deny our design and a designer, the wisdom will always be foolishness. Now, think of it even practically this way. If you were to take something and you didn't know what it was, and if you were to take a, you know, a, 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 you know, a computer and you didn't know what it was, and you had never seen a computer before, and you open it up and you try to figure out what it is, you know, you're going to sit there and say, what, is it a serving tablet? Is it this? Is it? You know, you're going to come with all these ideas that might seem wise, but it's foolishness. Because you're looking at it, and you don't know what the thing is. You don't know its design. You, 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 when you forget the designer, you forget the design. You forget the purpose. And so then you're coming up with all these ideas of what it is, but it's taking it further and further away from its design, and, and you're, you're missing out on the whole joy of what it was created to do. That's what happens with us. Is that when we take God out, we get away from the designer. We get away from the design. And all our wisdom is foolishness. See, and what the Bible's teaching is that idolatry, putting something else, it's not only wrong, it's foolish. It's something that it's not only sinful, it's impractical. That's what foolishness means. That when we do it, this doesn't work. The tower falls down, your life falls down. If you want to build a healthy life, you might think, oh, this is what I want to do. This is freedom. It's not freedom, it's slavery. And that's what the Bible teaches. See, every time that we take the first foundation out, we put something else in the spot, In time, the whole tower will fall. Verse 24, uh, go to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. So here's what happens is when we do this, we begin to love and worship the gift instead of the giver. 
We take, these all things are things that God has given us. They've created us, he's created us for us. And what we look at is we take the thing that he has created, the gift, and we value that over the giver, over the creator. We, we, we buy this lie of worshiping and serving the created things, the gifts, rather than the creator who gave us those things. We want the gift and not the one who's given us the gifts. And what you don't understand is what we need is the, we need the creator. We need the giver. If we have him, we have all the gifts. And we not only have all the gifts, but we have his wisdom of how to enjoy those things. You want even an illustration of this in another story? Go to Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. That's exactly what you see the prodigal son doing to the father. In the very beginning, he goes to the father and he says, Dad, you know, I want my inheritance. Give me my inheritance. And basically what the son is saying is, Dad, I want your stuff. I want your possessions, but I don't want you. You know, if you were dead, I would get all your possessions. I wouldn't have you, but I'd get your stuff. And I kind of wish you were dead. So give me your stuff so I can get away from you and just have the things that you give me. You see, he's saying, I want your provision. I don't want the provider. I don't want you. I just want your stuff. That's what we do with God. That's what the whole, that's what Romans 1 is describing here. That's what it means to take the first foundation out. Now, it's not only showing us how we do that, but it's this progress is also showing us the effect, the progress of the effect, and it's corrosive when we love other gods, when we put other things first in our life. Now, let's go back to verse 18. We started with this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I told you in the beginning, this whole is describing the wrath of God against unrighteousness, specifically the wrath of God when we put other gods before God. Now, that sounds like a harsh word. We don't like to talk about the word of wrath, right? What is the wrath of God? It describes it here, and it describes it in a way that I think is surprising. Do you know what it says the wrath of God is? Do you know how God shows us his wrath, how it's revealed, how he judges us for worshiping other idols? He does it by giving us what we want. Look at what it says. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in their lusts of of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. This is how I'm going to judge people. This is my wrath. What you want, what you want to give your life to, okay, I'm going to give it to you. Go for it. I'm going to turn you over to those lusts so that the things that you desire, you get full on. You say, how in the world, what is he saying here? What he's saying is this. If you remove the right foundation, if you take God out, and if you try to take this good thing and you make it a God thing, then what happens is over time, you're going to put your whole life into this, and it's going to let you down. And you're going to need to be able to try harder. It's not going to satisfy. And you're going to try harder. And over time, we actually become, instead of saying, this isn't working, we become, uh, you know, controlled by it, enslaved by, I need this because it's my God, but it isn't working. So we squeeze it harder and we somehow try to make it work. and, And we not only lose the joy of what it was created for, but it actually becomes something destructive in our life. Because again, we talked about what is the problem. We take a good thing and we make it a God thing. But whenever we take a good thing and we make it a God thing in our life, we put it in a central place where it wasn't designed, what happens is that over time, that good thing made a God thing always in time becomes a destructive thing in our lives. It always becomes something that is destructive because it doesn't satisfy. We squeeze more out of it. We get, and then we get further and further from God's design. 
We become dependent on it. We become enslaved to it. We need it, even when it's letting us down. My friends, this is something that is true for all areas of our life. And we're going to see that in a moment. But what I want you to see is when we go here, it's illustrated first and most clearly in our relationships and our sexuality. And this is just an illustration of one of the areas. We're going to see that in a moment. But let's see how it plays out in this one area. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of, into the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. It's dealing with sexuality. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. So it's all rooted in this removing this first command. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. Now, I want to tell you, this has become a really controversial passage. It's a passage that a lot of people, I mean, I, I could post this passage just on many social media, and I could be removed for just posting this passage. It's something that, you know, people, it's really controversial. And there are some people that will go out and they say, well, it doesn't really mean what it seems, seems to say. And, and when it says this, it really means that. And trying to re-explain you know, re it. No, it means what it, I want to tell you, it means what it seems to be meaning. And people that come up with different conclusions, it's not because, oh, well, here I've seen these words and now it explains it's something different. The reason they come up with different conclusions is that I want to enjoy my sexuality my way by my rules. And so we start with, this is my God, and I don't want to have God over it. And so how do I somehow tweak the Bible to get it to somehow to agree with the conclusion I already have? Now, other people will say, well, we shouldn't take this seriously because it's Paul and it's not Jesus, and Jesus didn't say this. Well, here we need to remember all the Bible is God's word. And if it's God's word that came to us through the mouth of Jesus, or if it's God's word that came through us through the pen of Paul, it's still equally God's word and therefore equally authoritative. So it applies to us. Now, I do want to say that we need to see this, that Paul is talking about homosexual behavior here. And, he, and really sexual deviancy, but, but he gets into homosexuality, and that's where it's really controversial. And here's why I want to say it's not desire, but it's behavior. We all have desires that are outside of God's will. All of us do. And part of what it means to be a follower of God is that we learn to be able to take our wrong desires and submit them to God's will so that we live according to his word, his truth, over, over those desires. We have people in our church that struggle with homosexual desires. We have people in our church that have homosexual orientation. That's part of who, you know, I might be speaking, some of you have spoken to me about that. There may be some that I, I don't know, and that's true of you. You're not alone. And I want you to realize is that we have people that do that, but struggle on a daily basis and say, okay, I want to make God, God of my life, even over this area. And that means that I have these desires that I want to do something wrong, and I'm not going to act on them. I'm going to put God's word first. Now, I understand that it's an incredibly difficult temptation to deal with. I understand that. And I want to say that even as I understand that, I want to speak with a heart of compassion. See, I know that, that as you see this growing in our culture, one of the reasons that you see it growing is that you see our culture removing this foundation. And what Romans is saying is that we remove this foundation, things fall apart around us, and be, people become victims. 
Why, why are some of these forms of sexuality growing? It's because people are victims of being raised in a dysfunctional culture, but it's still movement away from God's design. It doesn't make it right because our culture supports it. See, and God wants us to be able to say that, that no, giving into that becomes, it's maybe wise to the, to the world, but it's foolishness to, to us. Now, some people will say, well, the, the newest argument is, well, I think that God made me this way. God gave me these desires, and God, God would want me to act on the desires that he gave me, which sounds wise at the surface until you think about it, and then it becomes really foolish. And we all know it's foolish, and I'll, I'll show you. Let, let me even illustrate it by a seemingly unrelated story. Okay, there's a story about a woman who's driving into the mall. She's an older woman, got a big SUV, so she's, you know, she's it's packed, the parking lot. But she sees a spot that's toward the beginning, and so she drives there, and she's going a little bit slowly because she wants to be able to swing that SUV and not hit anybody. And as she's coming in slowly, a guy comes from the other direction. A young guy has got a you know, brand-new Mustang convertible, swings in right in front of her spot. And, you know, he, he parks his car, gets out, puts the top up, starts walking out, and she's fuming. She rolls down her window, and she says, you knew I was going into that park. That, that was my spot. What are you doing? And he says, I know, but that's the advantage of being young and quick and bold. So she closes her window. She puts her car in first gear, and she guns it and rams the back of his car. She puts it in reverse, rams it again. She hits it three or four times, literally knocks it out of the parking spot, down into the ravine right there in the front of the parking spot, parks her car, gets out, locks the door, starts to walk in toward the mall. The guy's sitting there with his mouth open. That's my brand new car. That was my car that was parked there. What are you doing? She says, I know it was your car, but that's the advantage of being old and rich and insured. She walks in toward the mall. <laughs> now, let me ask you the question. How many of you ever thought about doing something like that? How many wish you could, could do that with, you know, get away with it? And you call yourself Christian, sure. I mean, no, no. No, we all have. I mean, there's two kinds of people here. There are people that have thought about doing that and are willing to admit it, and people that are not willing to admit it. But we've all wished that we could and get away with it. Now, here's the question. Would it be right to say, because you have a desire to do that to an idiot driver, that therefore God has given you that desire, and therefore you should act on it? And some people are sitting there saying, I never thought about it that way. God's called me to be his act of justice. Man, that's great. No, no, that's not the point. No, just because you have the desire, it doesn't make it right. And likewise, if you're out somewhere and you see something you want, you can't afford it, it doesn't mean that you have the desire to steal, that therefore the desire to steal is right. Or if I see somebody and I have a desire to, to sleep with someone other than my wife, no, that desire doesn't mean that it's right. God didn't give me that desire. The fact is, we all have sin natures, and therefore, we all have sinful desires. We all know that in other areas of our life. And so, if we understand that we all have desires that are wrong, sinful nature, that what we do is we want to take this thing that God is good, and we want to take it outside of God's design and not put God over it, well, that's a wrong desire. We're rejecting God's authority over it, well, if that's true in those areas, it's true in our sexuality as well. But what happens is that in sexuality, we somehow justify it, and we take this good thing, we make it a God thing, and it becomes a destructive thing, especially as we deviate more and more from God's design. But what happens when we do that? 
what you see is this whole corrosive aspect described regarding our sexuality. Now, let me even take the whole issue of sexuality and see how it's played out. And you see how it's played out is very much aligned with what Romans is saying here. As we reject God's authority and try to enjoy it by own rules. In the 1960s, we went through a period that was often referred to as the sexual revolution. You had people out there saying, you know, you know boy, you know, marriage and sex is wonderful, but we need to get away with God's, you know, God's design of it. We need to enjoy it outside of marriage. We need to have freedom. If we have freedom, we will discover joy and love and peace. And they talked about that all the time. Well, again, so let's think about how that's gone. We started to move away from God's design in marriage as a culture. Have we become more, more uh, happier as a culture? Have our relationships become healthier? Have our, our families become healthier? In the 60s, it was an emphasis on free love and sex outside of the constraints of marriage. You had Hugh Hefner and Playboy, and they were the evangelists of this new God. 1970s, well, we need to further re remove the restraints of marriage, and so we need to make the divorce easier so you can, you know, you can hop between relationships. And, and then with free love, we needed to remove the consequences, so we need to legalize abortion or the killing of the unborn children that were a result of that sex so that, so that you don't have to deal with the consequences. In the 1980s, well, the institution of marriage continued to be attacked, so the wisdom of the time was that, well, no, you don't have to be married to actually live together and have sex, so you could just live together, and increasingly that became the norm amongst people. So you remove these ideas, and we're undermining the sixth commandment. But again, as we remove this, are people becoming happier? You know, are, are people, are, we have more you know, fulfilled relationships? No, all the research from that time up till now shows the further we get from God's design, the more dysfunctional we become, the less satisfied people are in their relationships, the more broken their families are, the less satisfied people are even in their sexuality. And here's why. It's what's being described in Romans 1. Anytime we take this good gift of God and we try to enjoy it outside of God's design, we make it a God thing, it will fail because we're trying to get it to meet needs it was never designed to meet. It's designed to be a piece of our life with God at the center. It's not designed to be the center of our life. But even as it fails to meet our need, we don't want to admit that because it's our God. We're dependent on it. So what we do instead is that we, we, we try harder. We, we squeeze the lemon harder. We're trying to get more juice. But in practice, as we demand more from our idol, the further we move from God's design, and in reality, it delivers less joy. It delivers less satisfaction because it's moving further from what God designed it to be. To stick with the lemon illustration, you squeeze it harder, but you're getting less juice and you're getting pulp that you're choking on. That's the reality. See, what happens is the further we get away, the more we see this good gift of God decaying so that we only have a copy of what God designed. So as we see it playing out in our culture, we have this culture that embraced the sexual revolution and we need to have freedom and, and we need to disengage from the confines of God's restrictions, of God's design. But people aren't more content. In reality, what we need to do is we need to squeeze more out of this failing idol. So in spite of that, what has happened over the last decades, we have this explosion of pornography and so now you have pornography available to everybody and so the vast majority of men and now even many women are involved in pornography. Why? Because we need to squeeze more out of this idol. And it's, it's not just the pornography of the 60s or 70s or 80s. Well, now it needs, because the idol never delivers. So those that get, become addicted, we need more and more and more extremes forms of pornography. 
And, and it's now we celebrate all these things that in the past were seen as deviant sex, and now we're bringing it into our marriage. And so we have these expectations in our marriage, and so that our marriages, our relationships are falling apart, and people are becoming less and less satisfied, even in their areas of sexuality. And because it's failed to satisfy, we squeeze the lemon harder. And so increasingly, we now as a culture celebrate homosexuality both as normal and something good. And we celebrate now homosexual marriage. And as that falls short, we have transgenderism and, and thing after thing. What happens is, we, is that we are continuing to get further and further from God's design, squeezing the lemon, somehow getting it to satisfy. And it's actually not satisfying. It's become further and further from even beginning to discover what it was intended for us to be. Do we have better relationships? Are we healthier? No. In fact, all the evidence shows that the further we get from God's design, the more destructive it is. And again, I, I speak this with grace with those that are struggling with these things, but it's truth of inviting you to say, okay, how do you, how do you realign with God's grace? As people get involved in trans, transgenderism, homosexuality, some of these things that are further from God's design, all the research shows that you're more likely to deal with problems like mental illness, with depression, with suicidal ideology. All of it shows that you become more and more broken, but you need to squeeze the lemon harder. And my friends, the truth is, no, God is calling you to be able to say, go back to the beginning. Get the right foundation. Now, this is not to focus on just the area of sexuality. Because then if you look at what he says later on, he says that this is a corrosion that is in all areas of our life. You see, what I think he's doing is he's taking this principle and he's saying, let's go deep into this area of sexuality, but it's true for all areas, all of the areas that the Ten Commandments speaks on. See, now, let's even look at this. See, this doesn't just break our sexuality, it breaks everything, anything that we would make as a God, anything, every aspect of life. And, and, and so look what he says. Look at the, uh, the last verses, starting in verse 28. Um, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. And look at verse 29, because you're going to start to see this list of things. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Now, what is covetousness? That's the 10th commandment. Malice, um, full of envy. Again, 10th commandment. Murder, 6th commandment. Strife, deceit. That's the 9th commandment. Maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God. That's speaking of the 2nd commandment. Insolent, that's the fifth commandment. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, fifth commandment again, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And you see all these things. Although they knew God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And what you see is that this breaks everything. And we have to be careful on this. I'm, you know, it's easy for us to look at this, and if we don't struggle with the issue of sexuality, and say, well, those bad people. And, and meanwhile, we're broken in somewhere else. All of us are broken in some of these areas. All of us are tempted to put something else in the center of God's place. And when we do, all of us will deal with that brokenness because it breaks everything in life. See, the question is, when we look at this, that's the reality. And that's the reality that, that many of us are even experiencing. If you want to understand that brokenness, you go back and say it's because you took that first commandment out, and this is the natural consequence. It's the wrath of God. But here's why I want to end just say, I want you to think about this wrath. See, because when we think about the wrath of God, we think, well, that's a bad thing. That's God's hatred. That's God's rejection. That means that God is angry with you in some way. Now, I want you to realize that when you look at what the Bible teaches here, 
It's teaching that God's wrath is actually an expression of his grace. This is beautiful. See, there are some people here that I know that are hurting. You're here and you're feeling pain, and, and much of that pain that you're dealing with may be the result of you taking God out of that center place of your life. You've taken him. You've put something else there that you're, that you're you know, trying to have some other God there, and, and that little God, little G God has failed you. And as that idol has failed, you squeeze harder, and you keep trying harder, and, and it doesn't seem to be working, and fact, the harder you squeeze, things get worse and worse. And I want you to see that what is happening is that God is showing his wrath by allowing you to basically turn you over to desires. If you want that, go, go get it. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to let you make that your God because what it's going to do is I'm doing it out of an act of love to try to teach you, to show you this is a false God. It's a false God, and, and this false God will fail you, and he's trying to expose the false God to be able to remind you of the true God. You've taken a good thing, and you've made it a God thing, and the more that you make it a God thing, the more it becomes a destructive thing. But my friends, that is not God's hatred of you. It is not God's rejection of you. It is God's love for you that is demonstrated by his pursuit of you. Now, you want to see the ultimate picture of this? Let me go to your story that I mentioned earlier. It's the prodigal son. Okay, what's the story of the prodigal son? As we saw earlier, it was the son coming and saying, Dad, I want your stuff. I don't want you. I want the gifts. I don't want the giver. It was a rejection of, of the first foundation. I don't, want, I don't need a relationship with my dad. My dad. You know, I want, I want to pursue the pleasures of my heart, of money, apart from a relationship with you. Now, what did the father do? The father had no, no obligation to give the inheritance. The father should have said, you want that? You're disinherited. You're out of the family. That's what should have happened. The fact that the father did what Jesus said he did was the most offensive part of the whole story. Because what the father did is said, okay, I'm going to give you what you asked for. He loved the son by giving him over to his desires. Because I said, what I want is a relationship with you, but you've already rejected that relationship, and I know that. And so I'm going to try to teach you by the thing that you want, the God that you have, the thing that you think is going to satisfy you, okay, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you the money. I'm going to give you the pleasure that you think you're going to have. Go for it. And what do we read is that the son, it falls apart as God's failed him. It brings destruction. He's left in, you know, eating pig's food and a pig's, pig's, you know, pig's pen. His life falls apart. And what does the story say? That when that happened, he came to his senses. He realized that his wisdom was really foolishness. And he came to his senses. And he realized what he needed was that foundation of that relationship with his dad. And if he had that relationship with the giver, then he'd have everything that he needed. And there was some shame, and he was afraid of returning to the father, because <laughs> what would the father do? But remember, the father gave everything as an act of love. And what happened when he came out of shame? The father was there waiting for him, knowing that this would fail you. You would come to a point of brokenness. And I'm waiting for you to realize it so that I can embrace you back. And the father came and embraced him and welcomed into the family. And said, I want to put this foundation back in your life. Let me be the center of your, your life, this relationship. Be part of the family. And then enjoy all the gifts, the good gifts that are part of that. My friends, I want you to realize that all this is an invitation to grace. It is God inviting us to return to the loving Father. 
If you're here today and you feel guilty or if you feel broken or if you feel, oh, God, you know, God, run away from God. God can't come to God. I want you to realize that God is pursuing you. God is bringing you to that point of brokenness, not to reject you, not to say that you don't belong, but he's pursuing you and saying, I'm bringing you to that point of brokenness because I want you to remember the thing that you're created for. I want you to remember this relationship that that should be at the heart of your being I want you to remember that there's an invitation. That of loving God that's reaching out and saying, okay, don't feel guilty, don't run away, don't feel broken, don't feel you don't belong. It's loving God that has said, okay, I've brought you to this point so that you remember these are false gods that have failed you. What you really desperately need is a relationship with the only God that will never fail. And he invites you to that grace today. The question is, will you hear that invitation? We accept it. Are you going to continue to, continue to run, run away, kind of do it your own way? You take, you're free to do that. The tower's going to fall. You're going to experience the wrath of God, the, not his anger, the natural consequences. But my friends, you do that, but realize that he's bringing you to the point, and there are some here today that he's brought you to the point. You're here today because he's chasing after you. And he's saying, I want to invite you back into that relationship. We accept the invitation and the love of that loving father.